This episode is brought to you by hrvcourse.com. If you're new to heart rate variability or you just want to take your use of it to the next level, there are now online courses designed to help you do exactly that. Hundreds of people from NFL coaches to doctors to athletes and health seekers are already taking advantage of the in-depth course material. It's all online, go at your own pace, and the material focuses about half on the science and mechanisms and half on the data and real-world application of HRV. The courses are also platform-independent, meaning the content applies to you no matter which HRV app or hardware you use. Continuing education credits are available as well. And last, make sure to get your 10% discount for being a listener of this podcast by using coupon code ELITEPODCAST at checkout. To take your use of HRV to the next level, head on over to hrvcourse.com. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is Jason Moore, your host. And today we've got an exciting guest, Stephen Robinson from Even Pulse. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be with you. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to join us. I know you've got a lot of stuff going on with your business and um, it's an exciting time for you uh, and your and your company. So, just to give folks a little bit of background, um, Stephen is the CEO of Evenpulse, which is a company that teaches the renowned Base R method, and that's a proprietary method um, that we'll learn more about here and there. And what they do is they train folks for stress mitigation and optimal optimal performance. And this is based on a three million dollar independent research study that shows dramatic improvement in the resilience, well-being, and mastery of the stress response. And that training has been delivered to corporations, military personnel, law enforcement, first responders, healthcare professionals, athletic teams, and over 25,000 other people since 2003. Is that right, Stephen? Around 2003 is when that kind of started? Yeah, that's right. Quick interjection as Stephen's audio dropped, and he just said, yeah, that's right, Jason. It was quite a few years ago. Okay. And um, in the meantime, Stephen's worked with a variety of elite audiences, including two entire Army Brigade combat teams, Air Force Security Forces, elements of the U.S. Special Operations Command, including SEALs, Green Berets, and combat controllers, to police departments and 16 SWAT teams. So uh, uh, touched a number of different uh, arenas here. And Stephen specializes in synthesizing complex information into an accessible form that audiences can leverage for building themselves and their teams. And I'll add to that a little that, uh, you know, as you'll see throughout this episode, Stephen's got a very calm and approachable uh, personality and is very good at kind of conveying messages that are complex to people to help under, help them understand it. Uh, so, thanks, thanks for joining us, Stephen. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here. And you know, it's funny, Jason. I um, having 
studied this uh, subject for many years and looked at neurophysiology and all that jazz, I, I find that a lot of times in talking with people who are professionals in the field of working with human performance, um, they'll get bogged down with the Latin and Greek-based terms and a lot of syllables. And being able to convert the information is something that's accessible for the people that we might think of as knuckle draggers in the tactical performance field is really, really important. And I think, you know, kind of distilling it down to its essence when you are working with athletes or individuals for that matter, um, especially people who don't have a scientific background, um, I think that's uh, it's critical for being able to make it accessible. And I, I see you guys have done the same thing on the elite HRV side of really helping people to kind of get the essence of why is this important? I appreciate that. And um, last year, you know, to add to that, I had a the honor to be invited to a, a small private gathering uh, with special forces and um, some other uh, elite organizations within the military talking about biomarkers. And um, I, uh, it was a two day event where we were, there was a lot of scientists there presenting different new and innovative technologies and representatives from the various branches and things. And uh, one thing I noticed is that um, the representatives from the various uh, branches of special forces in the military were uh, very character characteristically uh, straightforward and hardworking people, but also just highly intelligent and very mission driven. So uh, very results oriented and looking to get things done and, and realizing that, um, you know, their, their job uh, is unforgiving of mistakes and um, just because of the nature of the work they do. And so as we kind of talk about all this, uh, is that something you've run into with your populations as well that I know you've tapped into similar populations, maybe on a broader scale even, but um, is this, we talk a lot about stress or we're going to talk a lot about stress today. And does that play a role in your experience in improving decision-making and kind of outcomes as well? Yeah, I certainly think for the population you're describing, whether it's in special operations or the military writ large or over on the law enforcement side, you know, many people in those fields are very results-oriented. They're driven by what works. Um, to some extent, they may want to know why. And if they're really interested in geeking out on the information, they can always go deeper. But I find a lot of times the, the way that the, the information is presented, if it's too, quote unquote, sciencey, um, you'll lose your audience. They just want to know what works, a little bit perhaps about why it works, and then how does that apply to them. And uh, that's, that's the approach we take. I think uh, you know, that's an approach that generally is appealing to audiences because you can lose them with, uh, with too much, uh, too many, uh, many syllable words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate that. And I, and that was a, a sort of intentionally leading question because we talk about, and you know, in your intro there where I was telling folks who you are, um, we mentioned that the base R method looks at stress mitigation and optimal performance and, how do those kind of fit together? Yeah, well, they're, uh, just by way of background, my wife and I came to this uh, back in 2001. We met and had a lot of conversations about 
what's important in the world and what do we see are the greatest problems for people in terms of being impediments to being happier, being more self-actualized, et cetera. And the one thing we came back to consistently was stress that, you know, the thing that differentiates us from the animal world is that we can operate in almost a perpetual state of stress through all the stimulation we live in. And um, because my background was more in the human performance end, and I was very interested in, I studied special operations, was recruited by the government to study that. And I also had a background as a tennis player, martial artist, et cetera. I was very interested in, and continue to be very interested in what drives a high level of human performance. I also realized in the course of that, that what enables people to perform extremely well to a large degree is their ability to influence their autonomic nervous system, uh, sort of what's happening beneath the, the level of, of our normal conscious cognitive connection. And a lot of that is, is almost sort of subliminal or subconscious. But if we begin to be more aware of how those things operate, it makes a big difference. My wife came to this through more of uh, the stress side. She um, you know, grew up in a stressful environment within her family. She had um, studied contemplative practices and all sorts of ways essentially to uh, integrate uh, challenging life experiences, but also to move her consciousness to a higher and deeper level. So essentially, we, we married up our backgrounds and said, hey, human performance, stress mitigation, they kind of tie together. So. Oh, that's great. And, and I know that, you know, you've been working on this for a while now, over a decade, like you were mentioning, almost getting close to two decades. And the, you know, what's the reception been like to this type of concept of, um, you know, st stress and stress mitigation and, and consciousness and things are not often topics that are, uh, easily approachable by high performing kind of type a results oriented people. Um, so how, how do you kind of start the journey of that conversation? Yeah, well, good, good question. Um, we, when we busted out of the gates back in the early two thousands, I think in many ways we were probably five or 10 years ahead of our time while there were stress management programs out there that talked about breathing and time management and all sorts of things. Um, we had put together a model that essentially addresses the fundamental aspects of the human condition by looking at the things that we're already doing all the time inside of ourselves. Our awareness is always going somewhere. We have this autonomic function through the ANS, the autonomic nervous system is happening all the time, whether we think about it or not. We're constantly imagining, conjuring things that we want to do or develop. Uh, we're essentially energy machines and we feel things emotionally. And we have a drive or need to restore, rest, and recover on an ongoing basis. So we developed the base R model, which is our training method from that, because we said, hey, if we could begin to have some level of self-mastery over things that are happening naturally and sort of organically inside of us as human beings anyway, wouldn't that change performance? And of course, drawing on the things that we had studied uh, separately and then brought together as a a couple and a, and a team, we realized that would be a great access point because just pointing people to the fact that these processes are happening anyway inside of them, it's like, hey, why not develop a conscious relationship with becoming more self-masterful and how you use them? Right, right. And then eventually, that's kind of how we got connected is um, 
quantifying some of that through heart rate variability, which I know you had experience with before we even connected. And then, you know, what, you know, we can talk about how, how you use HRV and, and what other markers and things along the way do you use to, uh, to implement this base R concept? Well, HRV specifically, we use in our direct training because we find it's such a great illustrator when you can show someone on the screen that merely what they're thinking about can dysregulate their heart rate variability. I'll just give you an example. Sometimes when we're um, in training, I'll get somebody up on HRV, we'll put that up on the screen, and I'll ask them to think about someone at work that they find very difficult to deal with. And you'll see their HRV lower right on the screen within a minute or two, sometimes even faster, but a fairly fast response to uh, simply thinking about someone with whom they have a negative association. And once the audience sees that, they're like, holy smokes, they're just thinking about someone that they find uh, uncomfortable or they don't like this person or they have difficulty with them at work or what have you, and you'll see their HRV go lower. So just as an example, that's a way mm. that we illustrate. Um, we use lots of different ways to measure the responses. Um, we've used um, both in direct training and stuff that we were doing online, the brief stress and coping inventory, which is uh, a great validated instrument to look at um, what's your level of resilience, uh, what are the measures or what, what are the tools you're using to cope, uh, what are the life challenges you've had. Um, we encourage people to chronicle and log how they're sleeping because that's uh, you know certainly a way to look at um, are there changes I need to make and how I approach that because a huge uh, part of rest and recovery is as you guys know is how well are you sleeping because that's going to influence your HRV so mm -hmm. those can become nice toggles back and forth for uh, charting your progress or also measuring how fast you're you're resting and recovering right yeah that makes a lot of sense and so you know as somebody goes through or an organization goes through a base R uh, process, is that something that you see those values change frequently or, or, you know, how does the, how do those fit into like the long term um, as you teach them new skills and methods of, of improving that? Yeah, that's a good question too. I think uh, when you look at self mastery and, and I've used that term, I think a couple of times so far in the broadcast, what I mean by that is someone who has a level of conscious relationship with these natural functions that are happening inside the mind, brain, and body constantly. And certainly from our lens, if you are more self-masterful, you will tend to have wider, smoother heart rate variability. And um, you know what some of the early studies on special operations forces showed in the, these came out of the 80s, 90s, was that um, they would, the operators would often have a metronomic heartbeat and relatively low heart rate variability. So even if it was a fairly smooth sine wave, um, low HRV in itself, as you know, is, is uh, indicative of perhaps many different um, long-term health issues, um, arteriosclerosis and um, you know, various forms of heart disease, et cetera. And a lot of these... Uh, fellows who exhibited that low HRV died of, of coronary heart disease or other health issues at a relatively earlier age. So um, it, it goes to show that even someone who is highly sophisticated in being able to deliver their skills, such as being able to 
work with a weapon system and be in a high stress environment, that doesn't necessarily correlate to a higher level of, of health overall. And so, you know, being able to go from a more metronomic heartbeat, say in a, a high stress situation, like you know, training in a shoot house or actually being in combat to how fast do you return to wider, smoother HRV? And does your body and nervous system actually recover from that? And I think when you cross that over to athletes or to anybody else, I think um, the lesson to me in that is that we all have the human potential to recover from our stress. It's just a question of, are we staying in that lower, uh, lower HRV, which is reflective of higher stress and staying in a sympathetically dominant state, or does our parasympathetic nervous system actually work? <laughs> and, you know, do we have enough vagal tone? That's the vagus nerve that's, that's essentially communicating to the brain, including to the upper brain, that we feel relative safety and enough uh, space to relax. Right. That's huge. And that's, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff that, that folks can think about applying who are listening in, uh, into their own lives and realizing that, you know, that's one reason why we're interested in HRV to begin with us here and you there, um, is that, uh, it's like you said, so a lot of those folks are high performers. They probably are also, uh, fit in a lot of cases, but they can still have low HRV due to uh, chronically elevated stress levels or inflammatory lifestyle or sleep disruption or a number of different things. And, you know, an example of that too is that uh, people think that a, a resting, a low resting heart rate is um, a very beneficial thing, which in most cases is true. Um, but I have like a personal anecdote where, uh, last year, I injured my neck and my HRV went down quite a bit. As anyone can imagine, the, my, <laughs> the neck is an important uh, junction point for the nervous system. And uh, my resting heart rate, though, is is quite low. It's uh, usually the lowest in the room in most cases. <laughs> um, but uh, resting heart rate didn't really change much for me post-injury. Um, because, you know, I, my heart still had the same demands essentially day to day, uh, for as far as just moving blood around the body, so to speak, but the nervous system was severely impacted and the HRV was much lower following that injury. Um, and so that, that's just kind of an aside, a personal anecdote on that. And like you were saying, not only are, folks more susceptible when they have lower HRV to injuries or uh, illnesses, chronic uh, like heart disease, uh, things like that. But it also, I think, impacts their day-to-day -day energy levels, their decision-making ability, and their productivity. And I think part of your course is to help people perform better on a day-to-day -day in addition to just avoiding um, catastrophic conditions. Is that the case? Absolutely. You know, I think what we're trying to help people do is develop a frame around their lives so they see everything they do in a more holistic fashion. And so even if you're a high-end performer, whether it's in special operations or athletics or you're running a company, just because we wake up and go to work every day doesn't necessarily mean we're functioning at our best. And just to wit, when you look at sleep, for example, when we're sleep deprived, and a huge percentage of our population is chronically sleep deprived, 
What's interesting about the brain is it will actually tell you that you're functioning fine, even if you're functioning at substantially less than your capacity. And so it'll actually fool you into believing that all's good. And you tell everybody around you, hey, you good? I'm good. You know, and, and we kind of get this reflection. Um, I'll just give you an example. Uh, I was talking to some special operators and these guys were uh, had worked with special mission units, which is you know Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, et cetera. I won't say which, but I will say that uh, one of them said, you know, we, we had been out in the desert three days with no sleep and we were making some amazing field decisions. And I was like, no, you weren't. <laughs> your your brain, brain was telling you that. And that may be, you know, well, the case that that's what you thought was happening, but you're not operating at peak efficiency after three days with no sleep. It just ain't happening. <laughs> and Right. But but those are the kinds of things when we look at our lives, you know, like I'll just give you an example for sleep. I backward plan my sleep every single night. And so what I mean by that is I'll look at what do I need to do in the morning? What do I want to do in the morning? How much do I have time to get in before I have to get on a call or go train or whatever I'm going to do? And then knowing that I sleep we as human beings sleep in approximately hour and a half sleep cycles, somewhere between an hour and 20 and an hour and 40-ish. I figure out, okay, can I get in five sleep cycles or six sleep cycles? Because my optimal is usually actually about nine hours, but I function fine, at least so my brain tells me, on seven and a half hours. <laughs> so I look at that and I go, okay, well, how much time can I sleep? When can I uh, go to bed and when do I need to wake up? So I do that purposefully because I want to have a sleep strategy that allows me to operate at higher efficiency and more of a peak function when I got to go out and do my work. Mm, that's huge. Yeah. And I like that concept of backward sleep planning. I think that'll be, you know, that's kind of one of those uh, little sound bites that's nice for people to remember and think about. Um, but yeah, it's uh, so so you, so sleep is obviously a big deal. Um, you know, what are some recovery tactics, including maybe sleep optimization that you typically point people towards? Well, one for sure is looking at hydration. I mean, it, it's almost uh, sort of a platitude in our culture. We tell people to take a deep breath. That's important. We say you got to drink water. Uh, my uh, encouragement to your listening audience is how are you practicing these things? Do you have a strategy around how much sleep you get? Do you make sure that you're getting adequate, high-quality hydration? You're getting a clean water source and you're drinking it regularly. You know, if, if it gets to 1 o'clock in the afternoon, 1,300 and mil speak, well, are you feeling fatigued? Is that because you didn't get enough sleep or did you not drink any water all morning? And meanwhile, you popped down three cups of coffee. And you know, looking at some really basic things like that, I think, those are very helpful. Um, another is just finding kind of your work-rest ratio. Uh, some of the data on uh, uh, the Gen Y population is that they're sitting in front of their computer sometimes 12 to 14 hours a day. Well, there's not enough time in the day to exercise enough to balance out that much sitting in front of a computer time. So how are you working with your work-rest ratio so you're getting up and moving around and actually physically moving your body and also detaching yourself from that screen so that you're not just in this constant soup of generating energy in relationship to the screen. So what are you doing purposely to work with that? Just a few, a few ideas. Okay. And is, you know, I, I like kind of how 
that last point leads into different folks have different jobs. I mean, a lot of us now, myself included, spend a lot of time sitting in front of a screen or standing in front of a screen or just generally um, not moving around much. <laughs> um, is, you know, do you find different tactics uh, more useful for those populations than people who are maybe on their feet moving around more or do they have similar, are there similar issues for both arenas? Well, I think there's some similarities and obviously differences. Um, you know, when you look at a population that might, you know, let's just say you're working in a, war- a warehouse, not that there is many warehouses as there used to be, but if you were and you're moving around constantly, you might get more value out of finding five minutes every hour to sit quietly and just rest your nervous system. The person who's sitting at the desk at extended periods may get more value to their, their brain and nervous system and body by getting up and moving around. So, you know, really looking at what are the dynamics of what I do every day to find an optimal balance, what do I need for me? You know, and I know, for example, and probably much like you, Jason, um, sitting in front of my computer, while it's part of the way I engage with the world, I make sure that I get out and walk the dog. I'll get out and do some breathing exercises. I'll splice in a little bit of exercise. So I'm getting up and getting away from the computer screen periodically. And I find that that really does a lot to recharge the brain and nervous system into sort of detaching from the screen for a little while. I can come back to it. And then I've actually got a work-rest ratio that's going to allow me to engage more effectively when I'm in front of the screen. Mm, Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, it's... um... Our, it's funny you mentioned your dog is uh, we have a dog now as well and it definitely gets us moving a lot more frequently and, um, and starting the day by going outside almost immediately things like that and uh, our friends over at Nourish Balance Thrive which is a uh, elite functional medicine practice uh, or a functional medicine practice that primarily serves elite audiences is uh, they often say people have a dog deficiency um, and <laughs> because there's so many benefits to not only, you know, the companionship and the, and the going outside, but the just overall, uh, there's a lot of benefits to that. But um, yeah, it's, you know, and coming back to earlier when you were mentioning that uh, there are folks who kind of, operate at a high level and oftentimes they can push through, you know, without much sleep or, or, uh, maybe even over time convince themselves that they don't need much sleep and things like that. There's, um, definitely with the high performing audiences, this can be more prevalent. Is there, uh, resistance to, seeing or to needing some of these things as far as like operating at peak efficiency or admitting that there may be areas of improvement, which could be seen as a weakness uh, in some of these populations? Yeah, well, you certainly hear the platitudes like you can sleep when you're dead. Sleep is overrated. Um, If you sleep more than six hours, you're lazy, things like that. And I, I do think they're across Western culture, there is some um, headwind against admitting weakness. And you certainly see that a lot in the tactical population that they don't want to talk about uh, necessarily stress or um, that, you know, if you have issues around uh, sort of being at your best, nobody wants to own up to that. 
And uh, you know, that's that's part of uh, part of a lot of the high end performance oriented cultures. And they certainly don't want to admit it to each other. But if they were talking privately to someone like me, they might say, you know, hey, you know, my job's pretty freaking stressful, or or you know, I've been so burned out, or you know. Um, I often have had people say, you know, I've never said this to somebody before, but, <laughs> and part of that is they, they feel safe enough to say that. But, you know, the, the reality is when you're in a high stress job, particularly if you're being shot at or you're going into burning buildings or you have, you know, potentially unknown threats that could take your life or those around you, there is an intrinsic, um, enormously stressful um, impact on the nervous system in doing that. So you know, one of the reasons we created this program was many of the studies that I did around special operations in the military back in the 80s and 90s, I found that these guys really had very little strategy around how do I recover more effectively? How do I recalibrate and reset my nervous system and brain? And generally, the people that I found in those cultures, and particularly in special operations, who had the most success, lived a, what I would call a more holistic life. Uh, in the sense that they had very strong family connections, often uh, a strong spiritual underpinning, whether that was belief in God or anything bigger than themselves, uh, sometimes community connections beyond that, and sometimes extending through their their faith or what have you. Um, many of them had a multifaceted life, like um, General Sam Wilson, who I studied under for years, um, uh, wrote poetry, he played music, um, he led a church youth group and, and taught Sunday school, um, read extensively, had a great family relationship. And I think all of those, those pieces, when you look at it on its whole, that's a, reflect, a reflection of someone who is uh, fairly self-actualized. And um, you know, I know we could be looking at a chicken and egg thing in the sense that you know, perhaps he had a great upbringing and so on. I think um, when you look at your life, if you're missing any pieces that are kind of dressing out um, the holistic way of living, and that includes your social connection, um, that's a big part of maintaining high heart rate variability, and it's a big part of stress resilience. You know, when we feel isolated or, or on our own, you know, nobody understands me, nobody can connect with me, well, that's our first step toward feeling that um, disconnection in a way that, you know, uh, as we've seen with uh, recent suicides that have gotten so much publicity, even though people might be out in, in a social exposure, doesn't mean that they feel socially connected or hooked up inside themselves all the time. Right. And that the influence of our community and our social connections is so strong and I think often underestimated and even overlooked in some cases, you know, as we talk about these populations who are high performers, in a lot of cases, they often seem very confident to the outside viewer, very self-confident. Um, the fact is, I, in my experience, if somebody isn't willing to be open to asking for help or to be, uh, you know, kind of speak against or uh, slightly uh what do you call it? Swimming against the current, so to speak, within their social uh, circle is uh, there may be some some confidence things in there, or just a really strong current working against them. And like you said, there that element of trust that as you personally get to know them, they may say things to you on a one on one basis because they feel safe. 
admitting that there are things maybe that they could improve um, and that they don't have to take everything on the chin um, and that help could be beneficial. Uh, and then translating that actual to day-to-day decision-making and these individuals often have a very strong team bond when they're on a mission or when uh, even if you're talking about like business folks who are tackling some challenge of their job, um, when it's job related and oriented towards that, they often lean on each other very heavily. Everybody's got their roles and um, is a very uh, high performing open communication environment. But then when we start talking about these things like health and resilience and stress management and things that are a little bit more personal, you often see folks kind of close off to that. And then there's a this community social pressure of being a little bit more closed doors and not admitting the that there are challenges and things like that. And that that's not the case with every group or organization. It's just, it seems to be a fairly common theme in today's environment. Um, so yeah, so how do you, how do you start looking at some of that community social connection piece and, and helping people shift gears in that regard? Yeah. So when we look at social connection, that's one of the things that can really strengthen our resilience to stress because when we feel understood or that there are others in the same boat as us, um, we can relate to people in that in that way. When you look at the military or law enforcement or fire rescue, we talk about the green wall or the blue wall or the red wall. And that's the idea that the community itself is sort of insular and closed to people who are not inside of it. And in certain ways, it's both a strength and a weakness. On the strength side, you do have an opportunity for people to connect with each other who believe that nobody else can truly understand their experience. But the question, of course, is will they actually relate to each other in a real way? Or is there this attitude, you're good, I'm good, and then we all pretend that there's not really any stress or there are not really any issues? It goes back to what we were talking about uh, before, which is being perceived as weak or having issues could uh, threaten sort of the underlying ethos that makes up that population in the first place. It makes me think of the quote from uh, Robert Louis Stevenson that was actually attributed to a special forces guy years later, but it's basically um, keep your fears to yourself and share your courage with others. While I think in many ways that's reflective of those kinds of audiences, I think uh, being real with each other to an extent is extremely helpful. Uh, it's not helpful in the sense of, you know, if if I perceive you as weak and therefore when we go out on a mission or we go out on an operation or a response to a call, if I don't believe that your skills and your abilities as an operator, as an officer, as a, uh, a firefighter, what have you, are going to be there when we need them, yep, that um, revealing could um, cast doubt on abilities or what have you. But you know, many of these organizations, and particularly, uh, we just did some work with uh, Sioux Falls Fire Rescue up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. They've actually put in a peer support program that's about learning how to communicate with each other and within that uh, sort of natural insularity. And I think that's a great thing. Um, not that we want to sit down and, and generate bitch sessions about you know all the bad things that are happening, and cer- <laughs> certainly that's the downside when you put in uh, a group where we're going to talk to each other. 
sometimes it can degenerate into that. And that's not really the idea. You want to take that conversation into a constructive place of now, what are we doing about our sleep? What are we doing with our stress? What are we doing with our responses to things so that you're actually constructing solutions and helping people to feel understood and connected, so therefore hooked up inside of themselves? And then what can they do with that from there? Right, right. No, that's 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 awesome. That's huge. And, you know, as we've talked about these various pieces, maybe what we can do is, I know you have you have your base hour method, and then you have this course coming out called the Universal Stress Course. And maybe what we can do is uh, we'll transition a little about how those are related or different. But first, we can just say, okay, what's the big picture outline of the base R method? And we've talked about pieces of it. Maybe you can just kind of give us the overview of uh, one is who is the base R method primarily for and what's the general outline of, of it? Um, and then, of course, we'll point people where they can learn more and stuff, but, but maybe you could just outline it real quick for us. Yeah, well, I think just to um, back up into the topic I was just talking about, when you look at an audience like the military, law enforcement, or fire rescue, many people might say to themselves, well, that's not me. I don't go out and fight fires. I don't have to arrest bad guys or go you know, fight people or what have you. But the fact is that all of us have a fight-flight-freeze system built inside of us, our stress response that really engages uh, what we are on a more uh, quote-unquote primitive level. And so the reason we built BASAR as we did is that we knew that at the most fundamental level of who we are as human beings, no matter what uniform we wear or if we're not wearing a uniform, we have this natural response system inside. And so we looked at it and said, if you want to be able to respond effectively, you've got to look at the underlying mechanisms, which are really our autonomic nervous system. And if you can begin to address that, then you've got tools that will help change the way you operate. Um, so we built that as the most fundamental baseline of the training. The next piece we looked at is how aware are you externally and internally? And are you self-aware enough to know what's actually going on inside of you? And so that's the next piece of sort of working from a body-based awareness of what's happening to me physiologically, like sitting in your chair or standing or driving or whatever you are doing right now. What do you feel like in your body? Are you relaxed? Are you breathing fully and deeply? Is your nervous system jacked up? Is your nervous system relaxed? What's the tone of how you are in your body right now? And so as you begin to reflect on that, that's the first step of being able to make a change inside if you need that to operate at a, at a different or perhaps a better state. Um, so that requires awareness. And then when you begin to look at where does your attention go all the time, you know, the demands on our attention are enormous. We're pulled in all sorts of directions. And how hard is it to focus right now? And, you know, we talk about ADD and ADHD and kids. And I think a lot of that is a function of their brains have been trained to ping around like a ping pong ball. And it's hard to stay present and focused when your attention is used to being scattered or diffused enough that it's constantly moving from place to place to place. And so that's a next step we go in base R is learning to direct your attention purposely. The one after that is 
you're an imagination machine. You're constantly rehearsing things. You're looking forward. You're working on generating skills, whether it's going out to do a presentation or talking to your spouse or your kids about something. We constantly simulate, rehearse, and imagine how we're going to relate to our environment. So how can you purposefully take conscious control over that and actually make it a tool that will make you better? And so whether you're in special operations or you're an athlete or you're a housewife or you're leading a company, whatever you're doing in your life, you can become better at whatever a, a desired skill is by purposefully taking conscious control and having a relationship with how you imagine things, how you simulate, how you rehearse. The next piece of base R we look at is because we're energy machines, right? We get up, we go to work, we go do things, we exercise, we relate to our families. All that requires energy, and there's also an emotional underpinning to it. How attuned are you? Back to my first question, what's your level of energy right now in your body? Are you excited? Do you feel flat? So looking at that, those are all components of base R. And then the lost art that we see is that many people have uh, forgotten what it feels like to relax. I've been writing a book on that subject and I should call it Leaving Las Vegas, but it's V-A-G-U-S as in the vagus nerve. And it's based on the idea that many of us have forgotten how to relax, rest, and recover. And that's such a huge component in developing wider, smoother HRV and being able to perform effectively. So uh, that's really the sort of uh, encapsulation of um, what we teach in the Base R Method. And our Universal Stress course, which you asked about, is coming out soon. And that's really the course for everyone. While we've been known for training elite audiences and special operations and SWAT teams and firefighters and some sports teams and so on. We basically converted the whole method into something that's accessible for everybody because we've all got stress. And um, as we look at stressors in our lives, um, a big place to deal with that is look at what are you imagining? What are you rehearsing on a day-to-day -day basis? I just want to give you an example of that. Um, a few months ago, there was a uh, uh, a call that went out in Hawaii saying, this is not a drill. They're inbound ICBMs heading for Hawaii. Well, imagine the response that was happening. If you were in Hawaii, gosh, I mean, I knew some people who were there. They said it was incredibly stressful. You're getting uh, text messages on your phone saying they're, you know, this is not a drill. It's a ballistic missile alert. There was, there was no HRV in Hawaii at that time. <laughs> it was definitely a low HRV, right? <laughs> Between low and no, anyway. Um, but when, when we look at that, how much of the time are you rehearsing disasters and catastrophes in your own head? And I'm not saying that worrying is necessarily a bad thing if it makes you more prepared. So if you're a prepper and you're going like, hey, I got to prepare for a fire or a flood or some bad guys coming to my house or whatever, if that's part of your bent of how you see the world, that can actually make you feel more secure if you actually, um, if, if you actually are preparing yourself for that. But if you stay in that soup of constantly being stressed about the next disaster that's coming, if you watch the Weather Channel, for example, not to knock them, but just 
that or anything else you see on the news, you would think that the hurricanes in Hawaii or the lava, uh, I'm sorry, the, hur- the hurricanes in Florida or the lava flow in Hawaii or the latest floods in Europe are all happening right now to you in your local venue. Mm. And I, I, I was talking to somebody in Florida not long ago and, and uh, they were commenting on something that was happening across the world, but they seemed so stressed out about it. And I was like, is that actually happening to you right now? Or are you just generating that imaginary response? And then you're putting your, uh, your HRV in the crapper, you're feeling bad and you know, you, you need to look at, well, you don't need to, it's up to you, <laughs> but look at what are you doing with your awareness? That, yeah, that, that brings it all back around really. Right. Is, um, it connects all the previous dots together and, yeah, I often say, you know, when people ask what what kind of company or what's your goal with the lead HRV, so to speak, and um, you know, obviously, heart rate variability is a uh, analysis is a big part of what we do, but ultimately, we're just trying to help people be more self aware, and uh, HRV is a just a, a powerful tool that we found for that, and uh, so then that that base R framework is applied in many different arenas. And then you have your universal stress course coming out. And in fact, I think that might even be out right about the time that this podcast released. So if you're listening to this, you can um, perk up a little. And on this point is, is this universal stress course might be a new resource available as of right now. Um, but you know, just check the timing. We'll post links. Oh yeah. As a side note there, we'll post a little outline of, of that base R as well in the show notes at elitehrv.com slash podcast. But maybe Steven, you could just walk us through what is the universal stress course and how did that come about and how does it relate back to the base R framework? Yeah. Thank you. Um, for years, we've worked with these high-stress audiences, military, LE, fire rescue, et cetera. And what we realized and we heard as feedback was, gosh, my wife could use this. My husband could use this, um, my kids. And um, over the years, we kept getting these reflections that we needed to put together a course for sort of the day-to-day stress that we all experience. And so we built this course online so that anyone could access it as long as they've got internet access. And Essentially, they'll learn about 25 skills for self-regulation, and it's built in a model that uh, essentially frames up these things that are happening naturally inside of us anyway, and then helping people become more self-aware of how do they create a relationship with these skills and begin to interact with their day-to-day environment externally as well as internally. Awesome. Yeah. And and so that's something that folks will be able to access from wherever they are in the world, right? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we built this purposely so that wherever our audiences are and whatever they're doing, it's uh, it's something that they can take at their own pace. Um, we have built it so that they'll get a certification for it. So um, if they're taking it for continuing education units, it's uh, friendly to that. Um, it has checks on learning at the end of each section. Um, they'll get a certificate of completion when they're done, uh, an outline and course overview. If they're not interested in, in that from the standpoint of C, uh, continuing education units, it's still a great way to just get a, um, a reflection of did I actually understand what I was learning here? And um, 
we think it's uh, it's a great way to, to be able to check up on, hey, I got what that neurophysiology, that brain body section was about, or you know these key skills from autonomic regulation and so on. Okay. And so, you know, I, I know that the, the folks that you work with, obviously, um, there's a lot of uh, privacy and in general, uh, uh, in, in all lines of work, client um, confidentiality is important. But, you know, what are some projects that you're, you and your team are working on right now that are kind of interesting? Is there anything going on in uh, different arenas that have come out re- recently that y'all are working on that might be of interest to folks who are interested in this? Obviously, our listeners are uh, interested in HRV, but they're also interested in kind of quantifying and objectively measuring different uh, things. So before we kind of wind down here, I just thought I'd ask if there's any interesting projects you have going on right now. Yeah, well, the one I can share with you is we're working with Sioux Falls Fire Rescue up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I think that that's uh, a great um, great portal to look at um, where we're heading. And we're actually partnering with you guys, Elite HRV, on that. And uh, not just to blow our own horns, but we found that that's, uh, it's a great mechanism. We, we basically have set up the, the firefighters in pods that are based on their, their stations and their shifts. So while we can um, maintain anonymity and we don't know who the individual firefighters are being measured, we can get a reflection at the level of the station and even down to the shifts inside of the station of what does the HRV look like? And that becomes a point of discussion. So when we get into the peer uh, support groups and into uh, the resilience coaching and wellness coaching that's happening within their organization, um, the individual firefighters in the groups can look at it. It's like, hey, well, our HRV is really low. You know, what's been up lately? What's changed? Or have we had a bunch of very tough calls? Has our sleeping been poor? Um, what can we use that we know as resources and our tools that are available to us to help mitigate some of the effects of this? So I think that's where using heart rate variability, and particularly as, as we look at um, the relationship between even pulse and elite HRV, we're leveraging that so that these individual firefighters have an additional tool and a way of, of relating to what does stress resilience mean to me? And then how can I through my self-awareness process, become more effective both in managing it and purposefully through skills-based and other support mechanisms, um, have ways of dealing with it and becoming uh, more more recovered and eventually more self-actualized. Right. And I think that's kind of a nice just example uh, for folks listening, understanding like how Stephen, you and uh, Elizabeth and even Pulse fit in with the journey that someone or an organization might be going through. And, you know, we, uh, we heavily focus on providing tools and you take your experience from all these different arenas and help organizations create plans that are specific to their environment and also relating back to your base R method and um, other, you know, templates that you have available to you and help them kind of create a, a, personal or I'm so used to saying the word personal, but from an organization, like a, a specific template for them to move forward. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think, um, um, creating a framework for people to understand stress and resilience and understanding themselves is such a, a huge starting point. And what I like about heart rate variability as a tool 
is that it's a way of looking at what's happening inside of me and what's happening inside of me in relationship to what's happening outside of me. And uh, I think that becomes sort of the mirror of, of as we deal with our day-to-day life and the things that we do and engage with the world, how are we reacting and responding to that? Or are we creating responses that suit how we want to be in relationship to those things rather than just reacting? Right. Great. Well, you know, I think um, we've got a lot of interesting stuff for folks to think about. Uh, Stephen, you know, we've been conversing for a number of years and we had the chance to meet up in person in Colorado. So uh, I just really appreciate your time and the work that you're doing. And uh, where can folks find you? What's the best place for them to learn more about you? If they come to www.evenpulse.com, that's E-V-E-N-P-U-L-S-E.com, they'll find our website. Uh, We have a course catalog. If they're in military or law enforcement or other tactical fields, they can select that. If they're in the universal population, they might select that. But they can actually register and get a free trial for 72 hours to check out the course and uh, they'll, they'll uh, see a, a course sampler that will give them an overview of what they'll get in the Universal Stress course, as well as the lessons and interviews. And um, we've also built in that um, they'll receive a discount for uh, being able to take the Introductory Elite HRV course. So trying to provide a lot of different mechanisms and tools that people can use to um, uh, become more self-aware and uh, essentially take themselves where they want to go. That's great. Yeah, I appreciate that. And we will also post links to those in the show notes of the podcast. So if folks are already uh, looking at the show notes page or listening to it on the Elite HRV website, then you can just scroll down and see links to that and uh, in the description as well. So from your mobile device. And Stephen, yeah, I really appreciate your time. I I think uh, folks will probably be really interested in checking out that universal stress course and also learning more about the base R method, or if you're an organization that's looking to improve resilience and uh, both mental or physical performance, then uh, Even Pulse is a, a great company to look at. And uh, so, yeah, I just appreciate your time and thanks for coming. We'll uh, wrap it up there. All right. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you. All righty. Appreciate it. Thanks, Stephen. Sponsored by HRVCourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit HRVCourse.com to get access today.